Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. What we need when we're starting or really at any point in our artistic endeavors is to break down the barriers to starting. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. And in today's mini episode, you may have recognized that voice because episode 22 guest Sarah Sedwick is back and we are talking about some of the limitations you run up against when you first get started in art. We talk time limitations, money limitations, space limitations, and Sedwick offers some advice for what to do about them. Sarah Sedwick is an oil painter, but so much of what we talk about is relevant no matter your medium. And if you haven't listened to episode 22 with Sedwick, I highly recommend it. You can find a link in the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 37. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get more ideas on how to get better at painting. And if you find yourself listening to episodes multiple times, consider supporting the show through Patreon. Patrons get early access and supporter perks. To learn more, look for the Patreon link at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. All right, here we go. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast mini episode. When an artist first gets started, they know they want to paint. And that's sort of where they start. And often they can run up against these limitations of time, money, uh, space. And painting takes all of those things. So first off, did you run into any of that when you were first starting? Like those questions about, ah, can I take up space? Can I take up time? Can I take money for this thing? Cool. I love this topic, Kelly, and I'm really happy to be back with you for my second time talking with you. Uh, I think this podcast is really great. So when I got started painting back in 2008, when I first dove into daily painting and got really involved in that blogging scene and such, I had already been to a four-year art school. So I had experience with um, how to manage setting up a studio at home. And there was a lot of trial and error there. And honestly, I don't remember thinking that hard about it. It was like, either you are going to cordon off a section of whatever bedroom it is you're staying in, or there'll be a studio provided by the school or something. But I, I had some experience with here's how you paint at home or in whatever your designated space is. When I got started with daily painting, my living circumstances sort of dictated where and how I would do it. So I started off at the dining room table and then I kind of graduated to this corner of another really small room. And then uh, because of another move and a life change, I finally got a dedicated space and that was really great. And just kind of like, it's like uh, when you upsize from an apartment to a home, you think, oh, this is great. I'm, I'll be minimalist. You know, I, I won't engage in this clutter thing. But then the stuff sort of multiplies to fill the space available. I totally think that you can have a flourishing art practice with limited space and a simple, simplified pared down toolkit. But I also know, have experienced and have seen that the bigger the space you allow yourself, 
the more stuff can kind of creep in. So whether you like that idea or not, it can be something to watch out for. Listening to you talk, I'm sort of struck by that so many of us go into painting with an idea of what being a painter looks like. And I can sort of imagine that when we're figuring out what's right for us, it can run into those things like, I should have a studio. Not should, like the world owes it to me, but I'm not a painter unless I have a studio, so I need a ton of space. We often don't walk into a thing thinking like, how little can I work? How few materials do I need to work? Like we're sort of looking at artists that have been established for 30 years and taking our cues from them. Yeah, and that's really intimidating. And the other thing that comes along with that is to be worth anything, work has to be big, which is a very self-defeating idea, especially for the beginner. I think that what we need when we're starting, or really at any point in our artistic endeavors, is to break down the barriers to starting. And if you're having to reinvent the wheel every time you want to go paint, that's going to be a huge barrier to doing anything. And what I mean is if you've got to go find all your materials, get them out, assemble them, clear off the table, make yourself a space, and then get started on the process of making a painting, you know, the what to paint, the the mixing colors, the all the technical stuff, you won't start. It's too much. And so even if you don't have your own room or your own corner of a room, maybe you have a little rolling cart or a shelf somewhere where your stuff can be so you know where it is and it's as ready to go as possible. So I have right now as we speak a palette in my freezer. It doesn't have any paint pre-mixed on it because I don't have anything set up. I'm not in the process of painting, but I could whip that out. There's paint on it, take it upstairs, and pretty much to my home studio, which is a second bedroom in my uh, apartment. It is not large, but it's got everything I need, and I know where my brushes are. I know where my Gamsol is, and so within about 10 minutes, depending on how long it took me to figure out what to paint, I'm ready to go. So it's super important to break down those barriers, even if it's just um, having a, a dedicated spot in your home. It doesn't have to be a whole room. So some people have really limited space in their homes, urban, urban living, apartment living, and then you have to kind of start getting maybe more crafty about it, figuring out uh, different storage options, smaller easels, maybe a tabletop easel that can be folded and put away, but still you want as easy of access to those things as possible in the moment so you can just kind of get going. So simplifying your gear kind of gets at the resources piece that you brought up. You don't need a ton of stuff to start painting. We see these pictures of artist studios and not only are they huge, but they're jammed with materials, you know, cans and cans of paintbrushes of all sizes, huge canvases, rolls of canvas, all kinds of things. And you don't need all that stuff, especially to be starting. And I don't have all that stuff. Yes, I have way too many brushes. I'm a little bit of a brush hoarder, but I digress. A simple starter painting kit can be as little as four tubes of paint, three primary colors plus white. I teach that way a lot. I paint that way a lot myself. It saves money. It saves time and it definitely saves space. I will say I think that we should paint even as beginners with the best materials we can afford, especially paint. Student grade paint is out there. It's an option. It's not terrible. I was trained on student grade paint 25 years ago, but a lot of my adult amateur students don't realize what they're getting when they buy student grade paint. Yes, it's cheaper, but oftentimes you're not actually getting what's advertised. The pigment in the tube is not what it says on the front. The word hue is a good indicator of that. If it says hue, buyer beware. And one of the main issues with student grade paint is that it's, n it's not as fun to paint with as professional grade paint. Often the consistency is off. 
And when students use uh, cheap materials, sometimes they find they're struggling in their painting and they think the problem is them. And it's not, it's they're fighting against their materials. The other issue with cheaper paint is that when you do finally switch up to the professional grade, you're gonna have a big learning curve. So paint with the highest quality materials that you can afford. When we're starting out, like materials are fun. So first off, they're just fun. <laughs> they're also sometimes what we turn to when we can't solve a problem. So like if I'm painting with three colors and I can't solve a color problem, I say like, oh, maybe if I get a new tube of paint, it will fix this. And it rarely, spoiler, it rarely fixes it. And so I feel like there can be some of the, those instincts in us when we're first starting out to solve through materials instead of solve through learning our materials, to solve through buying more as opposed to working through the very real frustration. And it is, it's very real frustration of having to learn how something works. Yeah. And a great way to jumpstart your momentum and motivation is to take a class, find a teacher, and ask them how they handle these problems of home studio setup or the time and space and resources issues. But the problem with uh, going around and taking a lot of classes is you're going to encounter a lot of different materials lists. And so over time, you may accumulate this wide variety of things that different instructors recommended, and it becomes overwhelming. One of the main benefits of paring down your studio materials is that it simplifies your painting process and your thought process. And I totally agree with what you said, that oftentimes people reach for a different tool to solve a problem, when the truth is that great painters can do what they do with almost anything, including, you know, brushes, surfaces, and paint colors. So I, I would recommend to everyone that they take a post-it note and write, color gets all the credit, but value does all the work on it. Put it on your easel, because even if I gave you 35 tubes of paint to put out on your palette, you might not be able to actually match every color you're seeing in nature, because nature has no limitations, and oil paint definitely does. So what we're going for is conveying a sense of the color that we're seeing, getting as close hue-wise as we can. But what's really important for realistic representational painting, whether it's loose or photorealistic, is capturing those value relationships. It's not mixing to match color. So... With a three primary palette, three tubes, a red, a yellow, and a blue, you can do a lot more than you think you can. And the other good news is you're going to take a deep dive and learn a lot more about those chosen three pigments than you would if they were lost in a sea of other colors. And then as time goes on, you can add in a few more or you can switch to a different three primary set and then you would learn a lot about those colors. It's targeted practice. And that brings me to the time issue. What if we have limited time? and we all have limited time, let's face it. When you nudge painting on a regular, if not daily basis, up the priority list in your life, it can be pretty amazing what you'll find out, that that extra trip to the grocery store wasn't really necessary, that the laundry can wait another day, or that somebody else can do it, quite frankly. Ha. Uh, the other thing I see students doing is um, purchasing art supplies as a form of productive procrastination. You know, nobody wants to talk about this, but we all do this. And I know that when I find myself thinking, yeah, I need to go to the art store. I need I need XYZ or even I need to, to go and buy anything else instead of making my work. It's a red flag. Just notice it. Notice the tendency to buy things instead of creating because chances are you've already got everything you need right there at home. I know Kelly's shaking her head. Uh, we don't like to hear this. I don't like to say it, but I'm talking to myself right now and you. So back to the time resource. 
I believe in the, the timer <laughs> a lot. I think the timer is my friend and it freaks some people out. But if you want to get started with anything, a writing project, a painting project, whatever it is, making a bargain with yourself that you only have to do it for a certain amount of time can be a way to break down that resistance. You say, I'm going to set the timer for 30 minutes. And if I don't, and if I want to stop at the end of 30 minutes, great. Chances are, you won't. You'll want to keep going because you are enjoying yourself and you forgot about the timer and then it goes off and you just say shut up and keep painting. That's ideal. Another way that I approach the limited time thing because I would love to paint all day every day but that's not my life. You know I teach and I do other kinds of projects and all these things feed and fire my creativity but I don't just have unlimited painting time. I have to carve it out. And so the way that I make that most productive is by uh, dividing my process up into chunks or segments that can be separated from each other. So I'm a still life painter. Setting up a still life is one of the most challenging aspects of that. As all still life painters probably know, it can be frustrating, time consuming, way more than we think it should be. We think that should be the easiest part. So oftentimes I'm separating still life setup from the actual painting making and I'll work on several still lifes at once just sort of experimenting with different things and creating little piles of things around my studio. But as far as the rest of it is concerned, the actual painting, I will often do maybe some sketches and for, for composition along with maybe some paint mixing in a one studio session if I only have 45 minutes or an hour to be in there and then I'll have my palette all ready, pop it in the freezer, the next day I can come back and I'm ready to go. And then maybe I have a three hour chunk to spend on the painting. So don't feel like you have to bite it all off and chew it in the same day. That's very daunting. Don't you agree? Yeah, and I think it's one of those things also that again, when we have this idea of what it means to be a painter, we think like they're just in their studio all day with this expanse of time. And we have this tendency to wait until we, <laughs> until life gives us an expanse of time, which it will never do. Mm, you're so right. And then we wonder why we're not painting. And it's because some of it is just like this idea, but also what you said, I like what you said about the set a timer, because it also shows to the other people in your life, you and the other people in your life, like this is painting time. And I think there really is like a muscle that has to be strengthened to create and then hold space for something like painting, especially when you're first starting out and you're like, ah, like it feels very awkward. Yeah, and it can feel awkward to set boundaries around your time with the other people in your life. Absolutely, I agree. The other thing I was thinking about when you talked about the three colors plus white, it can be really tempting to get a bunch of tubes of tiny paint. But mm. then there's something about watching your hand squeeze all the paint from a tiny tube. It's <laughs> terrifying. But if you have like a big tube of paint, like you have your three colors plus white, and you get a big expensive tube that's going to last you six months. There's something really freeing about having a lot of something. If you're committing to three colors, commit to the biggest, nicest you can buy, if you can. Mm -hmm. And then it takes away some of that fear around using it. Yeah, I agree. The, the scarcity mindset is a real bummer and it can freeze us up. And uh, you can't learn to paint without using paint. And you, unfortunately, you can't make a painting, even a small painting, without using a bunch of paint. So what I always am yelling out in my workshops is, paint like a millionaire. <laughs> we want to squeeze out 
that paint because my process involves a fair amount of pre-mixing of colors before diving into the actual paint. And that would be one chunk of the painting process that I might separate separate out from the rest. Looking at my subject, thinking about the colors, actually mixing without a paintbrush in my hand to get myself set for that painting. But you need to make a lot. You know, paint doesn't get wasted that way. I, I don't know for a fact if this is sound practice scientifically or chemically, but I do store my palettes in the freezer in between painting sessions. And so paint doesn't go to waste. I can take paint from my last painting and take it forward into my next painting, even if the subject is not the same because that paint stays fresh. And because I've limited my palette colors, my tubes, I can turn those mixtures into anything. You actually have a ton of flexibility, the fewer ingredients that you have in all those mixtures. And another benefit, huge benefit of simplifying your palette is that you know how you made everything. So when you run out of something, you can get back there. It's not a guessing game. You, you know the, the recipe. And chances are it's a little bit of everything because almost all colors are just red, yellow, and blue mixed together with a certain amount of white. Which also then, <laughs> quote unquote, wastes fewer materials because if you're looking at the 30 tubes of paint, trying to find which combination you're more likely to, I don't like use, to use the term waste paint, but like you might use more paint than you wanted to try to get back there. But if you only have three colors plus white, you will probably learn that quicker about how to get back there too. Yeah, I think so. And if you're squeezing out 35 tubes around the outer ring of your palette, you may not even need to use all of those. So some of it may go to waste. And if a three, so I think there are a lot of painters out there, early painters who are probably scratching their heads going, how do I paint with just three colors and white? And so if that seems intimidating, I, you know, you can go check out my oil painting bootcamp online workshop and you'll get the full explanation for how that works or come take a workshop with me in person. But uh, you can also expand that palette and still keep it pretty small and simple. My typical painting palette is a split primary palette. So it's two of each of the primaries. So six tubes of paint plus white plus one or two bonus colors if I want to add those in. And I very rarely will add special colors for special subjects. It's like if I'm painting something teal, I have to have cobalt teal on my palette. Or if I've got something purple in my still life, I've got to have that dioxazine on the palette. You don't have to. It can be nice to have. But um, it's the mixing of the colors and the, the intermingling of the colors on the palette as we work our way more into it that brings that color harmony and really a naturalistic look to our paintings. What are the options that people have if they have limitations of space for what they work on their substrates and then and how they set up those things to dry? Because oil does take some time to dry. Mm-hmm. It does. It, it does. And there are things we can add to our oil paint to speed the drying time. Anything that ends in KYD, any medium, the alkyds, they're going to speed your drying time a little bit. And many of them also add gloss to the paint, which I don't really like. So I don't tend to use those. My favorite medium is just straight walnut oil, and that's not going to slow anybody's drying time. So yeah, you need a place for paintings to dry. Stretched canvases take up way more space in a studio than panels do, or works on a totally flat surface like paper. Arches oil paper is something I use a lot for studies, for sketches, for demos. Once it dries, which I let it dry by taking it off my painting board or, you know, my easel backing board, drawing board, and I just, just tape it on the wall. And if you're working on panel, I've seen these little shallow shelves. They kind of look like molding. People will put those up in the studio so they don't have a deep profile. They don't stick out very far, but you can prop your 
panels up on there. I've also seen people use, um, how would I describe this? It's like a desktop thing for traditional offices. Maybe it's for like envelopes. So it's got it's like a file thing with sticks that stick up and you put papers in it or something. And anyway, <laughs> sorry, I do not know what this thing is called, but it's a great way to store small paintings on panel also while they're drying. But also what I hear you saying is that if an artist knows how much space they have, you can configure a very awesome painting setup in that, as long as you're sort of aware of that. And it's important to be aware of that, I think, too, from what you said at the beginning, is if you're frustrated every time you go into your space, and if you're tripping over things and have to clean up things every time you paint, you're probably not going to paint. So it might actually be worth going a little bit smaller or maybe changing what you work on to fit the space you have so that then you feel better in the space so that then you can paint more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that cluttered, messy studio thing is also a huge barrier to starting. But the good news is that cleaning up your studio is a good way to get yourself going. You know, you say, I'm going to go in the studio. I'm going to just clean. I don't feel like painting today. I'm really just not feeling it. I'm not inspired. I'm going to go in the studio and just organize some things, maybe just for 20 minutes. And before you know it, painting is going to look like a lot more fun than cleaning and organizing your studio. I guarantee it. So to touch on the question of size, definitely we small painters, whether it's still life, portrait, landscape, figure, whatever you're painting, we we of the smaller canvases need not have an inferiority complex. It's it, Small paintings are a wonderful way to work and everyone thinks that, oh yeah, well I'm just going to go and make a little six by six. It'll be quick and easy. Well, there's no guarantee. Even a small painting can sometimes take many, many hours, and maybe it should. Some of them fall right out of you. But as far as the space that you have to paint in and how that relates to the size of the work you can make, it, it is an issue. If you want to work on a five-foot painting, you're not only going to have to worry about how to get that into your house or into your studio and out and out again. You have to have enough space to see it while you're working on it. I tend to paint, you know, between 8 inches and 24 inches, and not larger than that. But my studio is not a huge room. I really only end up being able to take a few steps back from my easel. So I think I talked about this last time, the uh, studio rear view mirror that I use. It's a small mirror that I have on the wall directly behind me, behind my back as I'm painting, and I can just turn around and see my canvas on my easel in this mirror. This is really good for not only checking my drawing, especially ellipses, but it's the equivalent for me of getting really far back because my painting's small in the mirror. Super helpful. Taking a photo with your phone is also a great way to put some space in between yourself and your painting because you're seeing it smaller. You get the big picture. So if someone has limited time, money, space, do you think what they paint matters? Huh. Well, I did mention taking workshops and classes at the outset, and that is something that might not feel super accessible if you have limited resources, but there are a lot of online options, especially nowadays, that are really affordable. And as far as what to paint, no, I think that people should paint what they are drawn to. And yeah, you may have to do a bunch of experimenting to figure out what you're drawn to, but as far as accessibility, landscape is free, yes, but we do need special gear for landscape painting. Portrait and figure is theoretically free, especially if you have compliant family members in your home, but models do cost money. Still Life, on the other hand, has a really low financial barrier to entry, I think. You probably have 
tons of things in your kitchen right now that would make excellent paintings. And if you don't, think about taking one of those things and cutting it up. You know, if an apple bores you, maybe apple slices will get the juices flowing. They do for me lately, I'm telling you. And flowers, free to pick many places, maybe even in your own backyard. And the materials that you need to get a functioning still life studio set up are also very inexpensive. I, I've had students who literally set their still lifes up on the seat of a chair, take a $8 clip lamp from the hardware store and stick it on one of the sides of the chair and shine it on the thing and you're painting. It's like super easy. If you think you need a fancy shadow box to control the light on your subject, a lot of people like to paint with shadow boxes. You can make your own out of a big cardboard box. Just take the front flaps off, set up your still life inside it, shine a light in. So uh, there's so many ways to, to hack things. I don't think that uh, we need to be limited by subject matter, but I really think that still life is the one subject in painting that can kind of start very entry level and get about as complicated and crazy as you want to go with it. There's so much about painting that is innately awkward and you sort of have to learn through it in the sense of like starting from a place where you have taken no time for yourself in your life, that everything you do is for other people, all of your time, either you're paid for it or it's to better a partner or children or whatever, it's for other people to then turn and say, I want to take resources for this thing I love that, frankly, I'm not even very good at. That can be really hard. And sometimes the first time a person has ever done that in their life as an adult. Mm -hmm. And it's awkward. And I just want to encourage people to know that if you're feeling that, that's not you. I mean, it is you, but it's normal. Yeah. Starting anything new is awkward and uncomfortable. And uh, I think that a lot of us realize that there's no growth without discomfort. And if we could get just a little bit more comfortable sitting in that discomfort, we're in good shape because we all want to keep our brains young and healthy. And the best way to do that is learning something new. So I have a student who recently moved to a new house and she has a new studio to get used to. And so whether you're going from an old studio to a new studio or just starting to paint for the first time and, and experimenting with what place or space in your home is going to be the most comfortable for you, I suggest that your job at that point is not to make finished paintings. It's not to create a product. It's not. And, and, and so many of us are focused on the end result, you know, the paycheck, the raising the children and getting them off to college, the work promotion, whatever the goal is in life. We're very goal oriented. And I think that when we're starting, our goal should not be the, the finished painting that we frame and hang over the fireplace. It should be finding our comfort zone in the new studio or space maybe finding a comfort zone with a teacher or class or a group of artist peers that we find. Working our way into our art practice as a space to inhabit with our own self or being rather than uh, focusing so much on what we're creating in the physical world at first. You can learn more about Sarah Sedwick, including her workshops at her website, sarahsedwick.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sarah. Thanks a lot, Kelly. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast mini episode. For show notes and to sign up for the newsletter, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 37. 
And if you like the show and want to help it live into the future, learn how at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. Speaking of support, thank you to everyone who is donating monthly through Patreon, including High Gloss Patreon supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Janet Wheeler, and Rihanna DeRold. Supporters, you make this show possible. Happy painting. <laughs>